looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Sam. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 70 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dewaskin. Great to have you back for another week of podcast goodness. And oh my goodness, do we have the goodness for you this week? Yes, we do. Legendary comedian Rich Scheidner, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Rich has been making people laugh for decades. In the world of stand-up comedy, he is a legend. He has written books on stand-up comedy in the 80s. He has written books capturing some of the most amazing stories from so many comedians on the road. And he is the producer and he has performed in the award-winning documentary, I Am Comic. Rich is here to share some amazing stories with us from the world of stand-up comedy. Big names, you know them. Jerry Seinfeld, Sam Kinison, and so many more. I don't want to spoil it. That's coming up in just a few minutes. One of the amazing things about doing this podcast is being able to talk to so many amazing people. And one such person was Ed Asner. And as I was finishing up my podcast last week, after I was done, I got word that Ed Asner had passed away. Ed Asner, as we all know, is a TV icon. And it was a real honor when he gave me even just a slice of his time when we talked earlier this year. It's episode 56, if anyone wants to check it out. It's such a loss, but he left so much great stuff. I'm going to put a link to the Ed Asner Family Center in the show notes. If anyone wants to make a donation in his memory, it was a huge loss. And uh, I just wanted to kind of uh, recognize that it was such an honor to have talked to him and may his memory be a blessing. That's episode 56. Again, if anyone wants to listen to my conversation with Ed Asner, I know you'll love it. And you know what else you love? Heading over to jeffisfunny.com. Wait a minute, Jeff. Isn't that the official website for Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show? Yes, it is. You can do so much there. Some people spend weekends there. Some person wrote in and said, I just spent an entire week at your website. It was glorious. I was so happy to hear that. I really was. If you go right now to jeffisfunny.com, you can sign up for my mailing list. You can buy me a coffee. You can listen to every past episode of the podcast for free. That's right. You can click a button that says follow the Jeff DeWaskin show, and that'll pop up all the podcast apps. You can follow, like, subscribe for free to live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin show on all your favorite podcast apps. Don't just do it on one. Do it on one, two, 10, maybe 15 apps. You never know. The first 14 could fail. You don't want to miss a notification when a new episode goes live. You don't want to be the only one in town not knowing what's going on. So definitely, you know, stack the deck in your favor and follow me on at least 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 podcast apps. Also, follow me on YouTube while you're at it. You might as well just go all in. The Jeff Dewaskin Show on YouTube. We do a live show every Wednesday, me and a bunch of pals. We talk about amazing shows you should be watching, streaming, binging. That's right. You're always asking your friends, right? What are you watching? What should I watch? I don't have anything to watch. Right now, there are 39 hours. You heard me right. 39 hours of TV watching suggestions just waiting for you at the Jeff Dewaskin Show on my YouTube channel. And we do a new one every Wednesday, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. 
every Wednesday. There is no excuse why you shouldn't be filling up your entire life with television shows, movies, and documentaries. Absolutely no reason at all. Also sign up for my mailing list so we can stay in touch that way. I just want to connect with you. Tweet at me, at Jeff Dwoskin Show, on Twitter, or comment on one of my Instagram posts. I love hearing from you. I'll respond. I'll get you back. So you got your homework. Go do all that stuff. And you know what time it is? It's time for the social media tip. All right, this is the part of the show where I share a little bit of my social media knowledge with you, a little 411 I picked up on the streets. I already kind of laid out a little bit of social media strategy for you in my last few comments earlier in the episode where I said, if you comment to me, I'll comment back. That is your go-to strategy. You got to recognize the people that are talking to you on the social medias, but also you got to kind of stoke the flame as well, meaning you got to give to get. I know I've probably said this before, but on Twitter, you got to retweet, like, comment on other people's posts. You can't just have a timeline that's just you. On Instagram, I spend time liking tons of other people's posts. And yes, sometimes I think to myself, oh, this person never likes any of my posts. But you know what? I still like their posts. You know why? Because it's free. It's free for me to show appreciation for other people's posts with likes and comments. It's free to make that connection and reply to someone who reached out to you. Remember, folks, it's social media, not one-way media. And that's the social media tip. I do want to take a quick moment to thank all of you for all of your support of the sponsors week after week. I can't thank you enough. They call me. They generally sell out within hours of the podcast launching. It's incredible the support you show them. When you support them, you're supporting us. And that's how we keep the lights on here at Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. Today's sponsor, Gary's Shoes and Accessories for Today's Woman, located in New Market Mall. Gary's Shoes focuses exclusively on women's shoes and accessories. Looking for boots? Looking for flats? Looking for high heel shoes? Well, you've come to the right place. Because Gary's is here to serve you, and Gary's is the exclusive supplier of Happy Souls footwear. And did you say accessories? Oh, do we have accessories. Whether it be purses, scarves, belts, shoe inserts, or hosiery, Gary's got you covered. Isn't it time to make your feet happy? Come down to Gary's Shoes and Accessories for today's women today. All right. Well, if you're a woman and you need shoes, definitely check out Gary's. Side note, my wife just bought a pair. She loves them. She loves them. She said Gary's customer service is not top notch, but the price was right. All right. Well, you know, I think it's time for me to share the interview I did with Rich Scheidner with you. Are you ready for this? Legendary comedian. He's got so many stories. I am so excited to share this chat with you. Enjoy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest comedian and author rich scheidner hello sir thank you jeff thank you very much Not many people get my name correctly you got my name right off the bat first shot right off the bat well speaking of which so i was watching a, a clip of you on johnny carson and he kind of made some comment and then you came out and kind of made what looked like an off-the-cuff joke did he get your name wrong like the entire episode yeah, yeah, yeah. When I, uh, yeah, I should have changed my name when I first started, but I never did. I had names when I first started. I went on stage as Elvis DeGroot. I went on stage as Bud Lunch. And then I just, I used my real name and I, 
never should have done it. Uh, Jackie Martin used to call me Itchy Schneider, which I should have gone on as Itchy Schneider. I like that one. Rich Schneider always got messed up. Always. Okay. So, oh, so you, okay. So you know Jackie. He's a great dude. I interviewed him <laughs> twice. So Johnny Carson got your name wrong. You walk out. You kind of went rich. Whatever. <laughs> Was that off the cuff? Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Well, the reason I'm asking is because they they like to kind of clock you in there, don't they? Everything I've ever heard, like they they want to know exactly what you're going to say. Oh no, no, the sets were locked in. What I was going to say, I got in trouble with my second one because I changed the ending to my set like an hour before it went on. But I I got in big trouble with that. But they do they lock you in. What you're going to say was locked in. These for comics at my level, and then you're what you're going to do on panel was all set up too. Got it. Very cool. All right, so now back to Jackie, the joke man. <laughs> <laughs> Jackie. So the first time I met Jackie, there were uh, the, the showcase clubs didn't pay very much money, no money at all, really. And uh, these gigs started open up in New Jersey. There were $55. And my rent was 115 down in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So these were payday gigs. They were big gigs. There's always in stand-up comedy, if you have reliable transportation, you'll work. Jackie had a car. He lived at Long Island. They, the booker says, look, at the improv, you know, these two guys will pick you up at the improv and you'll go out and do the gig in Jersey. So Jackie and his buddy, uh, Bob Woods, who was called the Round Mound of Sound, he's a big guy. They picked me up in a 1970s land yacht. It was a big station wagon with fake wood paneling on the side. I don't know what it was, huge. I get in the car, and I used to drink and do whatever chemicals were available back then. I get in the car, I get in the back seat, they got a cooler filled with beer. This is probably a 40-minute drive out to Jersey. They got a cooler filled with beer, they got a, they got a thermos filled with Mai Tais. They've got about a dozen joints rolled. They got a bottle of whiskey just for sipping. We nearly got lost in the Lincoln Tunnel heading out. We were hammered by the time we got into Jersey. And we're lost. We are lost. There's no GPS. There's three drunk guys who have not been in New Jersey, North Jersey much. So we kind of knew the town and knew the name of the place. Jackie goes, let's ask this cop over there. So we pull over to a cop. We are drunk. And he rolled out of window. The cop rolls in and says, we're trying to get the... Freddy's in Bernardsville. He goes, follow me. And we got a cop to lead us. Three drunks just drives <laughs> us to the gig, escorts us to the gig. That's amazing. Yeah. That's the first time I worked with Jackie. He was hilarious. He would yell at the audience, come on, come on, come on, laugh, you bastards, laugh, come on. It was hilarious. <laughs> oh, man, that is too funny. Yeah, yeah. Before we talked, uh, you mentioned not mentioning you're an actor, but you had you had a you had a bit of a run and a, and a few uh, spotlights. I took acting classes. I never got into acting when I got in stand up comedy. When I was doing stand up comedy, I was free and clear up there. I was in the moment. I was totally beyond myself. No bit of self consciousness in acting. I would always be going, "Okay, is it my line? Is it my line? When's my line? Keep talking. When's my line? Here comes my line. Why is my hand moving? Where's my arm going? Where's it going?" I never got that in acting. I was a five and under guy, little roles here and there. I went to a lot of acting classes, never got it. I got in the stand-up for the laughter. I chased the laughs. That's what I did. I just had to hear those laughs, and I never cared about anything else, really, to tell you the truth. That's cool. But you still, you Roxanne with Steve Martin. So that- yeah, 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 I did. Yeah, yeah. That back, you know, we all got cast. There was, I think, six stand-ups in that movie. We were cast because Steve Martin wanted to put a lot of stand-up comics in the movie, and I, and I loved it. Now, look, I got a chance. Steve Martin was, I mean, I saw him at the Capitol Center, a rock arena, like 13, 14,000 people. Wow. I'd seen him when I first went to D.C. at the Kennedy Center, probably two-thirds a house, maybe 1,500, 2,000 people. And then I saw him. I'm standing there 
amongst 13,000 people watching this guy. It was a rock star. And then I'm on a movie with him. And there's a scene in the movie where he does all these one-liners. A guy heckles him about his nose and he rattles off like jokes. With the, uh, the darts. Right. Just hits him. Boom, boom, boom. Says, uh, hey, will you want to come over and, and help me rewrite these the night before I was in that scene? So he says, you want to come over and come over to his hotel room and go over those jokes and rewrite it with him. I walked out of there going, I just had a session writing with Steve Martin. I mean, I just was part, I couldn't believe I'd started in one place where you're a fan in the audience, just one of 13,000 people. And then I'm sitting in a hotel room going, nah, 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 that's not as funny as this one. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it's a surreal moment. That's pretty amazing. And then you were with Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop 2. Yeah, yeah. There's another one that, uh, you know, he hired a bunch of his old buddies. I mean, I worked with Eddie when I first started. I was there at the improv when Eddie came in and auditioned for the improv. And so Sunday nights, they'd have audition night. And I would MC it because you got 50 bucks for saying it. So I did it as much as I was in town. I'd do it back in 1979, 80. It was about 80, 81. Eddie comes in. And he's one of these people. You know, a bunch of people are sitting out there in a bar waiting. And I go, uh, next up, Eddie Murphy, you're next. Guy's doing five minutes. And the guy at the end of the bar, this young black guy, stands up. He's got a cashmere coat draped over his, you know, like over his shoulders. And the entourage, one of the guys lifts the coat off him and he walks in with this beautiful woman on his arm. I go, this guy's an auditioner. He's got an entourage. And he, I'll never forget it. I mean, I was like, you know, he did bet on impressions of Bill Cosby and Richard Pryor, but he did their material, you know, within it. And he did some other stuff, but that was his main thing. He did unbelievable impressions that night just for the five minutes. But you could see he had it. You could see there was a presence unbelievable and told the owner it came out to the bar said this guy's great somebody else at the bar went yeah but he did richard Pryor's material cosmic material and before i could explain yeah but within the impression it was okay you know and she says oh we're not having any thieves here so she wouldn't pass him so he went over to the comic strip and they immediately passed him and they managed him all the way through you know all those movies they made millions and millions with eddie murphy they went oh yeah they you could see him from a mile away it was not difficult to see at 17 or 18, whatever he was, he had it. It was it. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool to have been there and see that. Now, I guess if he was really, really a close friend, you would have been in Beverly Hills Cop 1. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in Beverly Hills Cop 2, and the scene is, I come up and I'm like a security guard. So I mean, literally like take two days, and I think I was on screen for like 15 seconds. I come up and hassle him, and of course he blows by me, another stiff white guy that he blows by. He is, um, they're delayed the shoot or something, or his scene, or delaying, not getting the lighting right. So Eddie says, come on. So we get down to this, we're at the Playboy Mansion. So we get down to this pond, and he's throwing bread or whatever to the geese or whatever. And this is where you see the power of it. So then an assistant comes over and says, Eddie, they're ready for you. And I goes, yeah, but I'm not ready for them. (laughs) And they're like, okay, Eddie. And then that assistant comes back a couple minutes later. Eddie, now? He goes, no, not now. (laughs) Then we finally (laughs) They had a bunch of women playing volleyball behind the scene and director's going, gals, jump more. He's telling us first AD to tell him, jump more, jump more. He's trying to get jiggle out of him, right? And he's telling the girls, jump, jump high when you're playing ball, jump high. And I tell Eddie, I go, I go, Eddie, there's too much silicone out there for the jiggle. And he does that Eddie Murphy patented laugh, right? <laughs> and and, and <laughs> the director turns over, he goes, go ahead, tell him, Rich. I said, you can't get jiggle out of the fake breast, you know, and the director's, I forgot about that. Let's move on. Let's go. So it was fun. Eddie's a fun guy. He was obviously, he's a talent beyond, you know, he's once once a generational guy, 
But my experience with him, he's a fun, open guy. He's, uh, that was my experience. That's awesome. And then you had a, a run, it looks like, in the, in the first uh, season of Married with Children. Yeah, I did. You episode. <laughs> I got the role and lost the role the same day, but I didn't know it. It was Fox was a, wasn't even a network on that. It was just a show that they were building these shows. And, and so, you know, you go through audition. I'd gone through audition where they go, you go to network back then, which meant there were three actors the producers in a network would get together for the first time and watch the final three and then decide who gets the role. And I'd gone to network not long before this on the role that Woody Harrelson got on Cheers. It was The coach had died, and so they had to replace him. So they, they had three blonde-haired guys. I was, a, I was the dumb East Coast blonde-haired guy. Harrelson, Woody Harrelson played the Midwest dumb guy. And then a guy on the West Coast named uh, Timothy Threadgill was the West Coast dumb blonde guy. Now, Timothy Threadgill ended up being Grizzly Man. If you ever saw that documentary where a guy tries to uh, become a grizzly bear whisperer <laughs> and ends up becoming a meal. Werner Hart, it's a great documentary. It's an unbelievable. So I'd been that experience of, of getting close to a role and not getting it. So the three actors of this were waiting for, for Married with Children to see the producers and the, the Fox Network people. We're sitting there waiting. And the two producers come in. They come, come down the hall. And the actor's seeing a Cross me, jumps up and runs and hugs one of the producers, Michael Moore. Hey! And Michael's like, You're going to love LA. Got my wife's got your room set up. We'll get you all set away. And the guy's got, I noticed then the guy's got his luggage. He'd come from the, you know, the airport. He goes, I'll get my driver to put the luggage in the car. And I go, Well, this is done. That's his buddy. This is, what are we doing here for? The other actor, he looks gut shot. He just slumps down in the seat like he knows what I know. It's over. And I'm getting ready to walk away. And then right off the bat, they go, Rich, you're in first. So I walked in with I didn't give a shit attitude, which I never had before in any audition. I make fun of the fact there is no network. I'm making fun of everything. And they loved me. And so they overrode the producer, wanted his buddy for the role. But Fox says, no, no, no. This other guy's too funny. You got to put him in. So he hated me from day one. <laughs> so, oh, no. <laughs> so I did seven episodes. And as soon as I was finished seven, he killed that character, man. Just got rid of him. And here's how you find out in Hollywood you're not on the show. So when we get Friday, we would get the script. And on Monday, you would do a table read. So on Friday, I don't get my script. I called my agent. Hey, I didn't get my script today. He said, because I'd work on it on the weekend with an acting coach. You know? So he said, oh, no, that's a mis it's a delivery mistake. Don't worry about it. I'll call you right back. He calls her up back and says, bad news, you're fired. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> good to know. I won't have to show up Monday and find out I can't get on the lot. Oh, man, that's rough. It's showbiz, man. That cast, though, went on at O'Neill. Um... Oh, he was a great guy. He is a great guy. I did um, one episode with uh, Jerry Hall, who was married to Mick Jagger at the time. And she was a, a model and beautiful and really nice. And one time where, you know, the, the walls are just plywood and then two by fours behind it, you know, so it's just a Hollywood wall. So one time we're standing behind the wall waiting to redo the scene again. And out of nowhere, she just goes, you're probably a Rolling Stone fan, aren't you? I go, yeah, because I hadn't mentioned, said anything about Mick Jack. I knew she was married to him. Everybody did, you know. I said, I said, yeah, of course. I saw him in, ever since I was a kid, 1972. And I said, she goes, well, Mick's a cheap son of a bitch. I'll tell you that right now. Just a cheap son of a bitch. I go, oh, okay. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just funny just because you like the stones well like them now because mick's a cheap son of a bitch <laughs> out of nowhere I go, okay <laughs> whatever you say i guess a husband's a husband when you're married doesn't matter if it's mick jagger or ed o'neill or al bundy you know <laughs> husband's a husband 
Oh, man. So that's funny. So you have a, a book, Kicking Through the Ashes, My Life as a Stand-Up in the 1980s Comedy Boom. And I know you, you mentioned like Steve Martin and you mentioned Eddie Murphy as if they were any name. But on, like, on your website, the testimonials for you are from Jerry Seinfeld, Jay Leno, Jeff Foxworthy, Bill Maher, some big names. You were the comedian other comedians went to watch. And like that's that's a huge compliment, especially from this lineup of comedians. I mean, that's that's incredible. Really incredible. So tell me about the 80s. <laughs> 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 it sounds like it was quite a time. I hit the wave right. That's all there was to it. I started doing stand-up in Washington, D.C. in 1977, January 1977. There were no comedy clubs. I was just banging around anywhere I could do it. I'd go to, you know, these singer-songwriter nights at pubs and work my way on. And anywhere I could do it, I did it. Band would take a bar break and I'd jump on stage, you know, and try to do it in front of a bunch of people drinking at a bar. There were all sorts of places I went to, coffee houses. And then um, I moved to New York in 79. And when the wave broke, I mean, 1980 clubs started opening. They started opening. And I just had been doing it for three years and working really hard at it. And I just hit it at the right time. You'd go out on the road, and uh, I remember one time, this was like 82, 83, down in Texas working with Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks was a young guy. He's about 10 years younger than me, but he was real. Everybody knew how funny he was. And we liked to hang out with each other, and we liked to drink and do drugs together. And um, they hired us to go work out in, in Tulsa and uh, Oklahoma City, had two new clubs open. So we went from Austin to there, and we ended up spending like eight weeks on the road because every time... We'd finish a week. They go, well, go over to this place. Go to here. Go to Amarillo. Go to Beaumont. Go to all these clubs were just popping up. The clubs were packed. They didn't need you to do, you know, social media work. You know, they put your eight by 10 on the front door to go here. This is this week's monkey. Here's who's here. They didn't care. They were like excited to see it. it was brand new. It was fresh. You were getting paid more each week. It's impossible to tell young comics today. Like the MC at one point, I remember talking to one MC. He was getting 1500 bucks a week. I was getting eight grand. I mean, it was ridiculous. These were unknowns. They were unknown. There were comics back then who were doing serious six figures a year who with no TV. You'd never heard of them, but they sold drinks because this is before the drunk driving laws changed. So the club owners were like, do the shows as long as you want. We're selling booze here. So they loved the comics who sold booze, the John Foxes, the Ollie Joe Praters who would drink on stage with the audience. They would do shots and the audience would do shots with them. And the club is, you come in, the club goes, they sold $15,000 last week with Ollie Joe. Can you top that? I said, I might, if my liver can hold out till weekend. That's what it was. It was, so it was a different time. It's hard to explain. You know, and there were only three networks and everybody wanted to get on the Tonight Show. There wasn't cable TV. You know, that came in 85 when Sam Kennison was the first guy to break out, really break out from just a cable thing showed a new path it was just a different time in the early 80s i mean i'll tell you any story you want i mean i'm just giving you an over overview of the 80s that was perfect all right so let's let's talk about tim allen tell me a story about tim allen tim allen's from michigan right so mark ridley the first time i went there he had a um it's a small side room in a bowling alley i do believe if i remember correctly there were guys that i met there there was a scene there was a detroit comedy scene there were a lot of these comedy scenes in the late 70s all over so then Mark Ridley, he moved to a nice place. I worked with Tim Allen. And I was goofing around. I was labeling my tours for no reason other than make it sound like it was something. And I did one was a power tool tour, right? Bring a power tool, get in free. And I was just doing it as a goof. I was, I was mocking guys for, for that kind of stuff. 
And Tim, and I remember working with him and we hung out. He really liked the power. He really, I mean, he'd talk about cars. I didn't give a damn how big the engine was of a car or what it had under the hood and all that sort of thing. And he was really into it. I remember that. He was totally into all that kind of stuff. It was like a fine line, right? Because I'm sort of like that end of the Alan Alda sensitive guy thing. And Tim was beginning, I think he called himself a masculinist or whatever. But there was a reaction to all that feminism of the late 70s, early 80s, that men started, you know, I want to be a guy, just a guy again. Can I just be a guy? And Tim wrote that. He fell on that side of the equation very well. Perfect timing. I mean, his career timing as well as joke timing. Sam Kennison had perfect career timing. Tim Allen had perfect career timing. When he was doing that act, there were guys like, this is who we want as our banner you know, holder. This, this is the guy right. that our banner in the battle comedically. He was a good guy. And, I, and, and we hung out. There were a lot of guys. Malone and Nucci's were comedy team. There were very few comedy teams then. They were there. It, clubs would attract people. You'd come into town. Even if it was a new club that didn't have a scene like Atlanta or whatever, you come into town, there's no comics hanging out. Next time you're going to come down, there's 18 comics hanging out, local comics, you know, because a guy would go, he'd be working at Sears, making 200 bucks a week, selling appliances. He get down to the comedy club thinking he's a pretty funny guy. He talks to the guy who's the MC who says, yeah, I'm making $1,500 a week. Too. He says, I'm as funny as that guy. I'm quitting my Sears job today. Did you get to work a lot with Sam Kinison to get back to him for a second? Yeah. <laughs> you got, you got Sam stories. It sounds oh, like. Oh my Sam. We, <laughs> so everybody, you know, knew, I mean, I'd go watch Sam in the back. Hey, we, I, I met him when I first came to LA in 82, we just became buddies. We both had been raised Pentecostal Baptist. We had that, we had a lot of, again, affinities for certain chemicals, but Sam was like a guy who was a, Last thing she put on, Mitzi would put him on like in Baldwin used to call it the chaser act. And the chaser act would clear the room. It would be so bad and horrendous that they'd clear the room so they could, you know, get ready for the next show when these continuous shows of Baldwin. And Sam was the chaser act at the comedy store. Mitzi put him on last. He was a door guy. They put him on. There'd be three tourists who didn't understand the show was over. And Sam would come up and he would have classic opening. You know, you've seen a lot of people here tonight. And I'm, a lot of funny, engaging comics, and I'm sure you're going to want to remember them. And I'm a little different. You're going to wish you'd never seen his face. Ah! You know, and he'd get right in, the, right in front of them and scream. And comics, we loved him. We'd, the comics were in the back of the room. We're watching Sam, and he's entertaining us like crazy. He's hilarious. But he starts getting good. You can see he's starting to attract a hip crowd. All of a sudden, the room is filling up at 11 o'clock or, well, whatever it was, to see Sam late with hipsters, rock and rollers, strippers a different crowd is coming in when it's empty all of a sudden they're filling up you didn't want to be in front of sam at that point because they didn't care about you they were there to see sam so we do this uh we get a gig of a local one nighter at ucla this young guy hires sam and i to work it so we're driving or this guy's driving over it's just a 400 in town drive to it drug money for that night gig that's what it was and we're driving over and sam goes uh so you closed the show, Scheidner. I said, oh, Sam, <laughs> he followed you now. He was swaggering. He was getting really good at the store. He said, no, no, they'll hate me. The college kids will hate me. They don't get what I'm doing, and they hate me. I said, I'm not falling for that, Sam. I'm, I'm not following you. You closed the show. He says, Scheidner, close the show. Trust me, it's going to work out better for everybody. If it doesn't work out, if you can't follow me, what I'm doing, then I'll I guarantee you, I'll give you my salary, and I'll still pay for the drugs. So I go, okay, well, I can't lose, right? So I said, okay. And Sam goes up, and I mean, he bites it. 
they're not buying into it. He's doing all the thing about being married and how disillusioned he is with love. And he does all these bits that, that are really about disillusionment of life, you know. And they're young college kids going, wait a minute, you know. And he does his Ethiopian bit about, this is sand. sand. <laughs> we have deserts too. We just don't live there. And they're like, no, oh, that's kind of mean, you know. They're just not buying. And Sam, he takes his beating. He doesn't turn on them, which is the worst thing a comic can do working from another comic is make the crowd angry, right? Just turn them completely off the comic. Right, right. He just takes the beat. Then he brings me up. The kid was terrible. And Sam knew not to even try to get that baton passed. So he just said, you know, you hate me. You're going to love this guy. <laughs> I'm telling you, you're going to love this guy. It's, and I have a killer set. This is like, I'd say, spring of 85. So that summer, Sam does Rodney Dangerfield's Young Comedian Special. And I'm working with a band. I don't know if you ever heard this band before, but it's called Little Feet. Little Feet was a big 70s band that I'm doing like some opening act work for them in the South. So one Saturday night, you know, we do a show. And the next morning, we're all getting in a van to go to the next gig. And all the guys in the band are going, ah, ah, ah. They're all doing impressions of Sam. And I went, uh-oh, Sam is gone, man. He is on his way. That one shot, five minutes, eight minutes, whatever it was, he was off. He was through the room. So he comes up to me at the comedy store a couple of weeks later. He says, hey, Scheidner, I just got rebooked in the UCLA for 15 grand. <laughs> <laughs> you want to come watch? He's in the big hall now. And I'll bet money there were kids in that. They gave him a standing ovation when he walked out. And I bet there were kids there that saw him and didn't like him five months earlier, you know, the previous spring. So it just goes to show it's, it's career timing. He, the TV showed him in a different way. And the second half of the eighties was different than the first half of the eighties. The first half of the eighties was Reagan's, you know, morning in America, we're going to do it. It's all great. And then the second half, it got a little darker in the second Reagan term. Things got a little darker. People got a little bit more disillusioned. They realized that trickle down economics. Hey, something's pissing on my head here. What is that? There's a little bit of different at- and Sam rode that darkness. He he that right attitude. That was such a tragic loss. Uh, well, you see the comedy store special that Mike Binder, who's a Detroit native, he directed the comedy store documentary. You saw that, right? I haven't seen it yet. I have. Well, it's on my list. It. You must see it because Sam's buddy Carl Abo tells the story of the accident. I've heard a bunch of times, but it's it's really it's phenomenal. Did you work with Rodney Dangerfield? <laughs> yeah, Rodney was. Um, he was something else, man. He had his club uh, in New York, and he wasn't when when I got to New York, they weren't regularly using young comics in any kind of way. But I think it was like the spring of whatever seventy nine or whatever. Uh, I got involved somehow to be. He would have they would have these um, prom shows. So you know, guys who were of his generation, Jackie Gale or Jackie Mason, or they would do regular shows, and then afterwards they bring these drunken prom kids in from Long Island, right? And it was just a chair and a whip stuff. I mean, it was just crowd control more than comedy. You know, I got hired to do 75 bucks. Again, a ton of money. I can, it's funny how I can remember the number. So I got became one of the regulars who would do these things in the spring, that spring and working in Rodney, you know, he would sit in the back, he'd be done and he'd finished his, sh- his shows or whatever. He'd be back there watching it. You know, he wore a robe. Anybody knows the story. You know, Rodney always took his clothes off, his suit and all. And he put a robe on top, but he never wore anything under the robe. And half the time, didn't bother to shut the robe. So Rodney would just walk around his club or anywhere with a robe on, naked underneath. It was just the way it was. So one night, I remember this. 
you know, there's comic and then comic and comic and keep these kids going for two, three hours, right? And so the comic who was in front of me jumped off early and I had to jump on to cover him. And then the comic who was supposed to come on after me was late. So I'm up there a long time. And I mean, it's just, you know, you, you know, you just pick out the big mouth and put them up on the cross, just, just brutalize somebody to teach them all a lesson. And of course they loved it. You know, I'm up there banging and banging. So I came off stage and Rodney comes up to me and goes, Hey kid, you got a lot of balls, man. You know, I'd heard that a lot when I was opening up for rock bands and stuff. And I was really, you know, it's a backhanded compliment. It's like, almost like saying, you got a lot of balls, no talent. It's unbelievable. You go up there as long as you do what you got really, <laughs> but you got a lot of balls. I'll tell you that. You know, you're really high. You don't give up the stage. I like that. You know, hey, you want to do some cocaine? And I was like, hey, cocaine with Rodney. Yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. So I go to Rodney's office and part of it was he gave me some ties. I, I used to wear old suits, like 40s and 50s suits and a tie. And he had some old ties. People would give him ties because he always wore a red tie. But they gave him ties that had patterns on it. He's like, here, wear this shit. You know, they got stuff on them. You know, I just wear a red tie. You know, hey, take them. I got, I got these. I still have these ties from I got from Rodney. And then we're we're drinking and doing cocaine. And first of all, I don't know if you you probably weren't. I, mean, I hope you weren't a, a coke addict, but <laughs> it was my first experience doing celebrity drugs. You know, I you know I I I was doing street coke. You know, which was cut with baby laxative, which keeps you more regular than it does high. You know. You just <laughs> celebrity coach. That was my first thing I noticed. And then I'm hanging with Rodney. So I thought I should try to get some advice. So I said, you know, what can I do to get better? And Rodney's like, well, you got to tape yourself. You know, you, you should have a tape player tonight. Tape yourself because the audience, so, you know, the, you got to listen to what they're laughing at. I said, yeah, I don't, I don't like tape myself because I sound like an idiot, you know? And Rodney's like, of course you're an idiot. You're a comedian. What do you think you are, a brain surgeon? You're an idiot. Tape yourself because the audience will tell you what's good. I'm telling you, individually, they may be orangutans, but as a group, they're genius. And I found out by talking to other people, that was one of Rodney's favorite lines, you know, about the crowd. Individually, they may be orangutans, but as a group, they're genius. <laughs> that was a fun night. But the real lesson I learned that night was, see, every time we were doing cocaine, we were doing it off a glass table. Every time I bent down to do a line of coke, I could see Rodney's nuts hanging underneath the table. So actually, that was my lesson. There's no such thing as free cocaine. That's what I really learned that night. <laughs> My favorite thing about talking about comics in Rodney Dangerfield, there isn't a comic that when talking about Rodney Dangerfield doesn't do his voice. <laughs> you got it. You, it's like, I can only, you know, if I try to do any impression, it'll come outside like Rodney. I can only do Rodney. That's the only guy that's good. <laughs> but he was, he was, look, he was an honorable guy. He was a totally honorable guy for comics, right? This actually happened. I was emceeing at the uh, improv. And Pat Buckles was a manager. And she said, Rodney's on the phone. Come to the phone. He wants to talk to you. So I get on the phone. He goes, hey, listen. He was like, I, I got this thing. I got this situation here. You know, I get this. I bought some material. I got some jokes from this guy. And they were all shit. But there's one joke. There's one joke. It's really good, man. It's too good. You know what I mean? Don't fit the other jokes. I'm thinking it's stolen. So let me see if you know who does this joke. So he tells me the joke. I go, well, that joke's Ronnie Shakes' joke. And Ronnie Shakes was a great one-liner comedian like Rodney. And Rod Ronnie died at a heart attack at 40 when he was just starting to get really hot big. He was unbelievable, great writer of jokes. I said, that's Ronnie Shakes jokes. He said, all right, well, give me his number. We want to call him up. So we give him Ronnie Shakes number. So next night, Ronnie Shakes comes in. He says, hey, thanks a lot for that. That was a great thing for me. I said, what happened? He said, well, Rodney Dangerfield calls up. Ronnie says, look, I got these jokes. One of them is yours, apparent. I found out. I'd already done them at my club. I normally pay 50 bucks, but if you want to sell it to me, I'll give you 250. If you don't want to sell it, I'll never do the joke again, but I'll give you 50 bucks anyway. Cause I did, I feel bad. I did it without checking. Cause I knew this joke was too good. And, uh, 
Ronnie Shakes was a huge Dangerfield fan. He said, no, nah, man, go take it. I'm, I'm honored you were doing my jokes. Rodney is going out to do the Tonight Show that Friday night. That's why he wanted that joke. He wanted to put it in this Tonight Show set. Calls Ronnie Shakes back a couple of minutes later and says, listen, I got two tickets to go out to L.A. to do the Tonight Show. Won't you come with me, kid? Won't you come with me? And he takes Ronnie Shakes with him out to L.A. Nice. That is a good dude. And then he gets some a spot at the improv so the guy from the Tonight Show can see Ronnie for the first time. And he didn't do it right away, but you need to be on the radar screen. And he got on the radar screen. That's a very honorable thing that Rodney did. And I always heard Rodney was so good to other comedians. Share a story about Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> Jerry probably, well, you know, he's one of the best joke writers, one of the best comics of my generation. But he absolutely thought about it more, thought about more the art of stand-up, the mechanics of stand-up than anybody. So when I worked with him the first time, it was one of those, Jerry Stanley was the agent that booked those Jersey gigs. It was one of those $55 gigs. Now, I knew who Jerry was because before I ever got into stand-up, fully, really into it, I was down in D.C. I didn't know other comics were doing this. And I was in law school. And a friend of mine from law school, she says, hey, you know, there are comedy clubs doing what you're doing up in New York with young comics like you in them. I'm like, really? So she takes me up to New York for a weekend. We can't get into Catch a Rising Star. We can't get into the improv. We get into the comic strip, which was the newest of the three clubs. So I'm sitting in the audience. I've been doing stand-up for less than a year. And I'm watching comic after comic come up thinking to myself, I'm funnier than this guy. I'm funnier than that guy. I should move to New York right now. And then Seinfeld closes the show. And after I watch Seinfeld, I go, I'm going to stay in D.C. for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) I think I got a little more work to do. He had the goods material. He did a whole long piece about going to the amusement park and the helpless father and son bumping car team. And it was just so tight and well-written. So I got to this Jersey kit cut to, this is like 78. Now, a year later or so, I'm up in New York and I'm working with Jerry out in Jersey. And I've battle tested in front of rock bands. I've been opening up for all sorts of rock bands. I, I could handle any crowd and I've been working a lot and I felt cocky. So we go to do this gig and it's a Jersey bar gig, right? And I know these people because I'm a Jersey guy. So Jerry goes, just goes, uh, he'll go on early. So I was kind of, wow, he's a bigger act in the city than me. But Booker said, no, Jerry wants to go on earlier. So he goes on, he does his material. He does his act and he does not deviate. They want dirty. He won't go dirty. You know what I mean? You can feel a crowd going. So I go on stage. I give them dirty. They go crazy. I get a bigger, much bigger reaction to Jerry that night. And we're driving back together. He says, you know, he said, you're a very funny guy, but, you know, working dirty is not going to help you get on the Tonight Show. I was working towards that goal. That's what I was doing, practicing. I don't worry about Tonight Show. I'm practicing towards something else. And I had to look at my act because I didn't even thought about doing a Tonight Show. He said, that's the goal. We got to get on TV. And you, if you take all your curse words out, your timing, your joke's going to be off. You're going to have gaps, hesitations, you know, where that word should be that you're putting in there. It will mess up the timing of your joke. You won't be as funny. You can work clean and be your hilarious guy and do TV. And I redid my whole act. I took that to heart because I'd watched this guy with the discipline he had and as funny as he was. And I went, he, he thinks about things. He, you could tell he was looking ahead in a way that I wasn't at the time. And I redid my whole act. I started working clean and I felt more comfortable working that way. Yeah, he's amazing the way he, he kind of breaks it down to the mechanics of the joke and, and the execution of it. It's he is he is amazing. Anytime I've ever seen him interviewed and talking about joke writing. I write every day. He says, I write every day. You gotta write. You gotta write before you go on stage because sometimes 
because I focused on the setup, the material I wanted to do, that I don't have a punchline for, I find it that night on stage. And I took that, that was another thing I learned from him. And no matter, if I was hungover, it didn't matter. I wrote every day. I don't care how, what it was, I wrote every day. So that's the job. That's the real job that most comics don't see. Yeah, he was very thoughtful then. When I was starting to do stand-up comedy, I saw him live. It sounds silly, but I, I like had a little notebook that I would write everything down in. That's not the silly part. I kept the, the ticket stub in that notebook, and like I had it with me every time I went on stage. He was so good, and especially coming off just watching him on Seinfeld and TV, and then to watch him live, and it was so great. I mean, it was just so amazing. I remember sitting around with a bunch of comics once, and they were talking about their favorite comics, and someone said Seinfeld, and a couple of the comics went, yeah, you know, with Jerry... I don't really get anything from Jerry on stage. I, I don't really get who he is, you know. I don't really get who he is. I said, you're not paying attention. He's stating very clearly who he is. He gets irritated when he loses a sock in a dryer. That drives him nuts. Right? He's irritated by these little things, that the, the, the language and the misuse of it. He's irritated by those things. He's very clear who he is up there. He likes his order. He likes things in set. He likes things the way they should be. I always dug him. I always thought he was top shelf. Obviously. <laughs> I'm a genius, aren't I? I'm a genius. I'm a genius. <laughs> yeah, he's he's uh he's brilliant. And I love that he still does I mean, for a guy that I mean could buy us all over and over and over and over again. I mean I tell you another story. So you know he had a role on Benson. It was a sitcom. He played assistant to the governor, something like that. Small role. So we were all friends back then. My first wife was a real good friend with him. She's still good friends with him, Carol Lever. So Jerry gets fired from this role, this acting role. And everybody's like, we got to be at the improv tonight. Jerry's going to be there. You want to make him feel better, you know? Come, come, everybody come hang out, make Jerry feel better. He comes in, not a problem. He just got fired from the sitcom when everybody was trying to get sitcoms. And he didn't care. He's like, I just want to do stand-up. That's all I ever wanted to do is stand-up. I'll just do stand-up. I'll do it forever. I don't care. That's who he was. He was a stand-up first and foremost. And he had it completely clear and he was okay with that. That's cool. It's also cool that you guys were there for him. I love that hearing how tight how you guys were. Everybody was. You know, if you did a Tonight Show, everybody in our community knew it. They, would, they had TVs in the Catch a Rising Star, the Improv, in L.A., comedy, the Improv. And they turn, they'd go, everybody shut up, turn the jukebox off. And if a comic was on that night, everybody would in the bar, all the comics stand around and watch you on a Tonight Show. You know, and then you get calls. I remember before I did my first Tonight Show, Seinfeld called me up and said, this was his message. He goes, you've already hit the home run. You're just rounding the bases. Don't trip. It doesn't look good for the fans. <laughs> That's basically what he said. You've already hit the home run. You're there. You're there. Just go out and do it, man. Just round the bases. Look good. <laughs> That's great advice. It's a great perspective, too. It's It really is. That's awesome. Oh, so let's, let's talk about Jeff Foxworthy for a second. So you helped him write his two Grammy Award-winning comedy albums? Yeah. We were, I was writing on his TV show. I wrote on Roseanne's show. And Jeff saw me on the lot. His his show was doing the same thing. He said, I'd like you to come right on my show. Roseanne's show was was winding down. It was the last season. So I thought, I'll make the jump, you know, over to Jeff's show because I thought it had some poss possibilities. And uh, we became friends. He's a guy who, uh, he's, you know, the, in the 90s, it started the balkanization of comedy where you could break down to more smaller groups. I'll become the I become the Mexican comedian. I'll just break off my demographics. I'll just break off. You know, you'd have to go for three networks as broad as possible. You could, I'll become, and Jeff took the biggest common denominator, stuck to his guns. You know, they kept telling him to get rid of your accent. You know, that Southern thing won't go. And he says, 
I'm just going to stick with who I am. And other comics, you know, where they're doing the same sort of thing. I'm going to be a lesbian comedian. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to go for who I am and and celebrate that in comedy and find my people. That's the whole, that's the whole challenge, right? And he did that better than anybody. He's great. He broke a whole new comedy form. He does this. The the setup is after the punchline. (laughs) (laughs) If you, right, if you do this, then you must be a redneck. And he doesn't even need to do the setup. That's a whole new joke for him. What, what is it like helping somebody write an album? Is it writing the material? Then he goes on stage, he just hones it, and then kind of, what, what was what's the writing process like that? Because it's, it's not like music, right, where you just do it and then record it. It's No, so some of the material we wrote together, and some of it was stuff from my old act. I was not really doing much stand-up at the time, so I just took some stuff. With certain people, like Jeff, we had a very much similar backgrounds and similar comedic voices, right? He was a married guy, and we were very similar in, in the ways of the time. So it was easy for him to adapt it, but you still have to take it. And Jeff, you know, take it from my New Jersey to his, hi, y'all. He had to transfer the words and the timing to his language, comedic language. Got it. People you work with, I would be his opening act in Vegas or wherever so I could work with him more. Jeff works hard. He worked hard. If you ever saw how he got his books out there and how he became that redneck comedian, those books... That was like a big random house release national book. That was a little imprint book that he pushed on radio shows. He would do eight, 10 radio shows a morning, his wife pouring coffee for him and him sitting there banging out one radio show after another to try to get the word out about these redneck books. So when I worked with him, I was impressed by his work ethic. I've worked with other comics where you can't get them to do one or two jokes a night. Jeff would go up there. He'd be in, you know, an hour show. If you could try a couple of new jokes, it'd be great. I mean, people are paying money. You don't want to try too much. He'd do five minutes and make it work fast. He's a quick study. He's a smart guy and he works real hard. A lot of comics don't realize that that's where they go. You know, I could just work one hour a night and goof off the rest of the time. But the ones who make it, the Ray Romanos, the Seinfelds, the Ellens, the, you know, Silver Silver, they work hard. They work hard in the daytime before they come out and play at night. The night's just the play. Who are you? Who are some of your favorite comedians right now? Well, I'm I'm a huge fan of Bill Burr's, obviously Dave Chappelle. I love Maria Bamford. Um, I I think what she does is special. She's like one of those very unique people. Those those are a couple of ones, obviously. They're, that's they're, that's easy to see. Those are special people. Yeah, I love Maria Bamford's one of my favorites. I went, I seen her at Mark Ridley's Comic Cast. I do. I got to open for her once. Oh, that was really? that was it was a joy to just to be able to kind of hang out and and meet her. The art form is so further along than when we were doing it. It's really, you know, every generation gets better and better. It's just so much better. We we would see like, if you could see five minutes, somebody doing five minutes on TV once in a while, doing a Tonight Show or some talk show. Back in my day, comedy albums, you didn't get a visual, but you could, you know, you could hear it, right? Your generation, the subsequent generations came preloaded with so many different joke forms and joke ideas because you watched a countless specials, hour-long specials. I remember when Richard Pryor's first movie came out in the movie theaters back in like 78 or 79, I sat in there and watched it like six days in a row, watched this movie, because I had never seen anybody do long form like that or do that kind of, you know, really get the chance to study it. It's it's different, and it, that's why it's better and better. There's, there's so many more comics there. You have amateurs. We never had amateurs. We'd have people, we'd have hobbyists. You have hobbyists. You have people that never intend to quit the day job. That used to be a heckle. Somebody yelled, don't quit your day job. Like, you yell at somebody today, a lot of them go, I don't intend to. 
I got a dental, <laughs> I got full medical, great 401. I just goofing around here. Never had that one when I was a comic, young comic. You wouldn't get stage time to those people. You have so many more comics now. You you seem to love, uh, with this book, uh, Kicking Through the Ashes, and then you had I Killed, another book, and then the movie that you produced, I Am Comic. You seem to have a very interesting thread of wanting to capture all these stories so that people... I know you talk about Mike Binder's uh, documentary earlier, but you, you've done a lot of things to help kind of put all these things in the memories of people and, and document it so people can have record of this, all these stories of all these famous people, famous comedians. That's pretty cool. I think that's really awesome. Thank you. I was working on a show in 2005, 2006. It was called Blue Collar TV, Foxworthy, Bill Engvall, Ron White, Larry Cable Guy. And so one day we're in a writer's room and there was Blaine Capatch, who was a young comic, myself. There were a couple others. I can't remember everybody was there. We start telling stories. All of us are telling stories. You got like six, seven stand-ups. There's 20 some people in this room. There's so much laughter going on. People down the hallway from other production companies come down and join the room. And at the end of it, I look around. There's 30, 40 people jammed in this office. Listen to us tell stories. And one of the other writers, again, I can't remember her name. I think it was Emily Cutler. She turns to me, she goes, you should write a book. You should put together a book of these stories. They're unbelievable. That's the genesis of that. I was like, absolutely. So I went and got my friend Mark Schiff. I said, between us, we know pretty much everybody we can put together a book. It was harder than we could imagine, you know, getting all those stories, edit them. We messed up. Uh, I think I think Mark Barron's story got credited to somebody else. I mean, there were mistakes <laughs> made, but we did the best we could. And I'm writing a book now on the history of stand-up comedy. That's what I wanted to eventually, you know, it's an American art form, and I think it deserves to be really dealt that way. So its own book. That book sounds amazing. You you have a very pleasing way to when you tell these stories. Like there it's it's great listening to your version of these retellings. So it's it's very compelling. There's lessons in all these stories. There's so many lessons. If you go back to George Burns, you remember George Burns, Grace, George and Gracie? For sure. Burns and Allen, you remember them. Okay. He said, the comic soul is eternal. The mechanics change, you know, the technology changes, but the actual soul of the comedian, it's forever. It's the same. It's the same as it was from the first stand-up comic to today. It's the same person. That all they care about is making people laugh and what can they do and got to get those laughs and how hard can I make them laugh? Those things are all the same. Beautiful words. Thank, well, thanks for hanging with me. And I could, I could listen to these stories forever, but I want to. <laughs> as you can tell, I can say them forever. <laughs> but I, I, maybe you can come back and we can talk about some other comics. Uh, anytime, Jeff. It was my pleasure. I could tell you guys into it. Maybe I'll come back and we'll talk about the history of it sometime. Be a pleasure. That would be amazing. Uh, is there a way to, um, for people to keep up with you on the socials? I'm on Facebook. I don't do much much i'm an old lazy guy <laughs> all right so well they you they can follow you at, at the website and then your books are on amazon and i'll put yeah. links to all those in the show notes thank you you're welcome you're welcome well thank you so much i really appreciate it this is great it was really fun great stories thanks jeff all right everyone keep it going for rich scheidner Woo! how awesome was that so many great stories huh i did not lie i told you I'll put links to all of Rich's books and everything in the show notes, as always, so you don't have to worry about that. Just go there, jeffisfunny.com. All the show notes for every episode at jeffisfunny.com. 
If you love hearing interviews with comedians, oh my God, we've done a million of them. Dave Murhedge, Ricky Glord, Craig Shoemaker, Marianne Hooper, Bob Zaney, Hal Sparks, Bill Dwyer, Jackie Martling, Alonzo Bowden, Bobby Collins, Steve Bluestein, Horace H.B. Sanders, J. Chris Newberg, Brett Ernst, Hal Sparks, Dave Landau, Mike Young, just to name a few. I know, amazing, right? So dive in, go to jeffisfunny.com, just search, and they're all waiting for you. But here we are, nearing the end of another episode. But you know what that means. Oh, yeah, you know what that means. That means it's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtag games at hashtag roundup. Follow hashtag roundup on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Download the free hashtag roundup app on the Apple or Google Play stores. Tweet along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Duoskin Show. We thought we'd have a little fun this week. Put a little ha-ha in the hashtag. A tag from Sneaky Fridays, a weekly game on hashtag roundup. Hashtag comedy serials. Oh my god, how many ways are there to make serials funny? Well, I think we're about to find out. With these hashtag comedy serials. The ultimate mashup game where you combine something funny with your favorite cereal. So here's some of the best hashtag comedy serials. Caddy Smacks, Al Frankenberry, Dane Cookies and Cream, Funny Comb, Dude Where's My Cocoa Puffs, Cereal Burnett, Total Franken, Lucy Charms, Dane Cookie Crisp, Golden Girl Grams, Apple Jacks Black, Cheerios O'Terry, Frosted Mini Pearls, and the final comedy cereal, Andrew Dice Krispies. Oh, Hickory Dickory Doc. <laughs> Why do I attempt impressions? I do not know. Oh, those were some amazing hashtag comedy cereals coming at you. As always, I'll retweet them at Jeff Duoskin Show on Twitter. They'll be listed in the show notes. Retweet them. Show them some love. And you don't forget to play along every day so that one day I'll get to read one of your tweets. Well, here we are at the end of another episode. Can't believe episode 70 has come and gone. I'd like to thank my guest, Rich Scheidner. And I'd like to thank all of you for coming back week after week. Means the world to me. I can't thank you enough. And I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.